Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The presentation that we are commenting on here is entitled Shipwreck of Faith, which was presented uh, in Waitara Church as an objection to the truth about the Godhead. And the presentation was given to promote the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is what we're going to examine today. Now, the reason we are actually answering this presentation is simply because we thought to follow the counsel of our Heavenly Father in clarifying this misrepresentation. And this is the reason why we have undertaken this effort to answer these objections and to clarify in people's minds the truth of these things. And we have done so in presenting not in, a, not in a misrepresenting manner, the position of Waitara Church, and that is we have used their own slides so as not to misrepresent them, but to give them a fair hearing of all the comments that they are making, and we are giving the answer that we have. And here is our counsel from the spirit of prophecy that gives us what we are to do when this is the case. Reading from Selected Messages, Book 2, page 152, quote, when men endanger the work and cause of God by their own wrong course of action, shall they hear no voice of reproof? If the wrongdoer only were concerned and the work reached no farther than him, he alone should have the words of warning. But when his course of action is doing positive harm to the cause of truth and souls are imperiled, God requires that the warning be as broad as the injury done. And so this is what we are endeavoring to do in this effort. Souls are being imperiled today because of misrepresentation of facts and God requires that a warning should be given as broad as the injury done. Now, as we looked at the title screen there, we were told the title tells us should SDAs abandon the Trinity doctrine and we're going to look at the Bible and the spirit of prophecy in this section. Now if you notice we're actually beginning with part two which deals with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and then we'll go to part one which actually deals with the history. Now we're told as we have the slide here before us that cover of the book the living voice of the Lord's witnesses. If you get your hands on that book and if you do not have it you can access it on our internet website. The question has been asked should SDAs have accepted the doctrine of the Trinity to begin with. Now, it is a fact of history that the SDAs abandoned the doctrine of the Trinity for more than 80 years. And that book documents the factual statements that support this claim. Another fact is that this occurred while the church had a living prophet in their midst. That is, they had a direct link with heaven in order to guide them on the path of truth towards the city of light. Now today, the claim is made by Waitara Church, as we see on this slide. Who then is attacking the Trinity again in the SDA Church? Quote, there are several who take this position quite vehemently, including several Australian groups. And seeing that we have been mentioned by name, we only thought it wise to clarify the matter and actually give an answer to what we actually believe rather than being misrepresented. Now, of course, the speaker uh, put on display a number of our literature that we print out, and he made the claim that he has read every single one of these books. And yet, sadly, it seems that some facts missed his attention in that he perhaps did not grasp clearly what was being said in the books, which is understandable. There are lots of books. So we just thought to clarify the matter and these points that were misrepresented, we will represent correctly as coming from us. We continue. 
The Bible speaks on the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And now we'll begin with some of the objections that are presented by Watara Church. And we'll see what some of the answers that can be given are. And here is an objection. The claim is made that the Trinity has no scriptural support. Now, Watara Church says there are many texts which affirm that God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are one in purpose, in character, in eternal coexistence, but are separate personalities. And there are a number of texts listed there, as we can see on the slide, that are given to support that claim that was just been made. Now, it's very interesting. If you take your Bible and actually turn to these texts, you will find that none of the texts mention anything about the Father and the Son and the Spirit being one. The texts don't mention anything about the Father, Son, and Spirit being in eternal coexistence. And the texts are entirely silent about anything of the nature of separate personalities regarding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this objection and this set of texts do not hold the conclusion that has been drawn from them. Furthermore, we are told, continuing with objection, uh, it says, separate persons may indeed be one when in every aspect they agree and thus can be one God. And we're told that Christ existed from eternity yet is still called the only begotten Son of God. Now, of course, any Bible student will remember the reference in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, where we are told that Christ's goings forth have been from the days of eternity. And we might have a look at that text a little later in the presentation. Going on with the objection from Waitara, we're told, in that respect, human terms to describe the relationship are inadequate, but the nearest we can imagine is the relationship between an earthly father and his son. Now, of course, this is the claim that is made to justify the use of the terms father and son, but the only problem is that this claim is made without any support whatsoever. It is an assumption. We're actually not told at all. There's no text anywhere telling us or hinting to us that the one God is composed of separate persons, as the claim was made in the first opening paragraph. Now, this issue with the language of the Bible, it's the nearest that we can imagine to a relationship. We will deal with it in a minute as we continue. Sister White tells us in the Great Controversy, page 599, quote, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. Christ has given the promise, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John 7, 17. Now, this is a very important statement. We're told here that the Bible is to be understood according to its obvious meaning. And the exception is, when a symbol or a figure is employed. Now, the obvious meaning in the Bible of certain words should be taken unless we're dealing with a prophecy with symbols or figures. Now, if we turn very simply to Proverbs chapter 8, and we will read verses 22 to 30, and we will apply the rule that we are given here in the spirit of prophecy to understand the Bible according to its obvious meaning. Now, we'll turn to Proverbs chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 22 down to 30. In Proverbs 8.22, the Bible says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. 
while as yet he had not made the earth nor the fields nor the highest part of the dust of the world when he prepared the heavens i was there when he set a compass upon the face of the depth when he established the clouds above when he strengthened the fountains of the deep when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth then i was by him as one brought up with him and i was daily his delight rejoicing always before him now this is a very plain bible passage where christ under the title of wisdom is speaking about an event that happened before the creation of all things and that event is described as the lord possessing him and the description goes on to tell us that how he was possessed by the lord is that he was brought forth twice in that passage we are told that christ was brought forth now i know someone will object and say well this passage is not speaking about christ well if you check in your bible and cross-reference proverbs 8 which talks about wisdom and you cross-reference that with first corinthians chapter 1 verses 30 24 and 30 let's go there first corinthians chapter 1 I will just see who exactly is wisdom referring to in Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we will look at verses 24 and 30. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Bible very plainly tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. And Christ, under the title of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8, tells us how the Lord possessed him. And he says that it was by being brought forth. Now let's turn to the words of the spirit of prophecy and see if we can get a confirmation. Is Christ the one speaking in Proverbs chapter 8? Reading from Selected Messages, book 1, page 247. Quote, The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, he declares before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. Proverbs eight twenty-two to 27. Now it's very plain here from the spirit of prophecy that Sister White quotes Proverbs chapter eight, the very passage that is in question and she applies it to Christ, and she applies it to him as the divine Son of God. Okay, that should alleviate any questioning regarding Proverbs chapter 8. Now let's go on to the topic of the Holy Spirit, which, are, which is our next objection point. The objection is made by Waitara Church to one of the tracts, and the objection goes like this. Studies for restitution tracts deceive the reader into believing in a Holy Spirit when they later claim that Christ is the Comforter. Now that's the objection, and the answer is very simple. That Christ is the Comforter is not our claim. The Prophet of God makes this claim, not us. 
And here are the references. Let's read them together. Manuscript Releases, Volume H, page 49. Quote, The Savior is our comforter. This I have proved him to be. Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, page 297. Quote, As by faith we look to Jesus, our faith pierces the shadow, and we adore God for his wondrous love in giving Jesus the comforter. Review and Herald, January 27, 1903. Quote, Let them study the 17th of John and learn how to pray and how to live the prayer of Christ. He is the comforter. Now that's very plain testimony from the spirit of prophecy that Jesus Christ is our comforter, not someone else. Continuing, the next objection, we are told, Waitara Church makes the claim up the top there, that John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26, and chapter 15, verse 26, where the Spirit is called He, that He is the other comforter, as the Bible says, that Christ will send us another comforter. So this is the objection, that the Spirit is called He, and the Spirit is referred to as another comforter. Now let's see if the Spirit of Prophecy comments on these verses, because these verses are used to teach that because the Spirit is called He and another Comforter, therefore the Spirit must be another different being, another different God being to the Father and to the Son, making Him a third co-equal, co-eternal God being, as we shall see the definition in a minute. Now, is this the true understanding of these verses? Sister White comments on these verses, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us, in Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, page 179. Quote, now listen carefully. Christ tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Comforter, and the Comforter is the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, which the Father shall send in my name. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. This refers to the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ, called the Comforter. End quote. How very interesting. The Spirit of Prophecy clearly tells us that these references refer to the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ. That is called the Comforter. Very plain testimony. But that is not enough, because further, we have another comment from the Spirit of Prophecy going on. The same reference, page 23. We're told, again, quote, Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was altogether for their advantage that he should leave them, go to his Father, and send the Holy Spirit to be his successor on earth. The Holy Spirit is himself divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. He would represent himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit as the omnipresent. How very plain. We're plainly told here that the Holy Spirit is himself and that he, that is Christ, would represent himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit as the omnipresent. Earlier we were told that the Comforter refers to the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ, and here we are told that this is Christ himself who represents himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit as the omnipresent. 
That is the understanding that the Spirit of Prophecy gives us regarding these texts in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15. Now, we continue. Waitara Church continues to make this objection. So the Comforter is a distinct person. He, who is the Holy Ghost, proceeds from the Father and represents Christ. Now, let's see if this is true or not. Again, we turn to the inspired pages of the Spirit of Prophecy to get an understanding that is given to us from heaven. When heaven tells us about the Spirit, does it teach us that the Spirit is a different, distinct person to the Father and to the Son? Or does it say something else? Let's have a look in Desire of Ages, page 805. Quote, the impartation of the Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. Now here we have a question. Is the life of Christ another individual being different to Christ? I think the answer would be a definite no. Continuing, Review and Herald, January 5, 1911, paragraph 6, quote, Christ gives them the life of his life. The Holy Spirit puts forth its highest energies to work in mind and heart. Here we see the Holy Spirit is called the life of his life. Is the life of his life, the life of our master, is that a different individual to him? Let's read another one. Ministry of Healing, page 159. Quote, Christ gives them the breath of his own spirit, the life of his own life. And again, Review and Herald, October 26, 1897, paragraph 15. Quote, The influence of the Holy Spirit is the life of Christ in the soul. Very plain testimonies. But let's read further, because we need to get more witnesses. Is the Holy Spirit a different individual being? Let's see how else the Spirit of Prophecy comments on the work of the Holy Spirit. In Review and Herald, November 29, 1892, we are told, quote, The work of the Holy Spirit is immeasurably great. It is from this source that power and efficiency come to the worker for God. And the Holy Spirit is the Comforter as the personal presence of Christ to the soul. How so very beautiful. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of Christ, not someone else, to the soul. This is real comfort for you and me, the personal presence of Christ. Let's read about it again in Review and Herald, May 19, 1904. Quote, This comforter is the Holy Spirit, the soul of his life. The efficiency of his church, the light and life of the world. With his spirit, Christ sends a reconciling influence and a power that takes away sin. How so very plain. The power that takes away sin is given to us by Christ's own spirit, which is his own personal presence in the soul. Do you have Christ's personal presence in your soul? That is the only power that takes away sin. If you have anyone else, you do not have the source of power that can take away sin. Let's continue. Waitara Church goes on to make this claim, objection. This means that the Holy Spirit does the work of Christ on earth, 
amongst his believers. So it is no surprise that he is called the Spirit of Christ. Now that's a very good sounding objection. The objection basically says that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ because it does the work of Christ on earth. Now that seems to make sense until we ask ourselves the question, who really does the work of Christ on earth? And we can read the answer in the Desire of Ages, page 166. Quote, While Jesus ministers in the sanctuary above, he is still, by his Spirit, the minister of the church on earth. He is withdrawn from the eye of sense, but his parting promise is fulfilled. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 20. While he delegates his power to inferior ministers, his energizing presence is still with his church. Here we're told very plainly that Christ, while ministering in the sanctuary above, yet he, that is Christ, is still by his spirit, the minister of the church on earth. Now, we just found earlier that his spirit is his own personal presence. It's his own life. It is the soul of his life. It is the life of his life. That personal presence is how he continues his work here on earth. Christ does not have someone else different to him doing his work on earth, but his own energizing presence is still with the church. Now, we're told that very plainly in the Bible as well, that the only mediator between us and God is the man Christ Jesus, as 1 Timothy 2, 5 very plainly tells us. We don't have two mediators, Christ and someone else. We have one mediator, Christ. And while Christ is in the sanctuary above, he is still by his spirit, the minister of the church on earth. We don't have two ministers. We have one minister who operates on two levels in the physical flesh in heaven above and by his own personal presence, by his own spirit in our hearts on earth. He is the minister of the heavenly temple and the minister of the earthly temple. The temple of earth is his people. As Paul tells us, for ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the minister of both temples. We don't have two different priests, one in heaven and one in the temple on earth. The earthly temple, the body of his people, his bride is ministered to by our high priest. And he does that by his own personal presence. It's called his spirit. It's very plain if you can understand the concept that we don't have more than one minister. Continuing on, we have an objection here made by Waitara Church. We're told, in other words, while Christ on, was on earth, the Holy Spirit was in heaven. And when Christ went to heaven, the Holy Spirit came to Christ's followers on earth. How much more of a separate person could there be? Now, of course, this is another objection that because Christ was on earth and the Holy Spirit was in heaven, therefore they must be two def different and separate persons. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Is the Spirit a separate person or the glory of Christ? Why was Christ, when he was on earth, why did he have to go to heaven before he could send the Spirit to earth? Now let's read the answer in the Word of God in John chapter 7 and verse 39. Why did Christ have to go to heaven? Why couldn't the Spirit come while Christ was here on earth? In John 7, 39, the answer is given to us. Let's read verse 38 so we can get some context. From verse 38, Christ says, He that believeth on me, 
as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there is a very important link here given to us between Jesus and his glorification and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not yet glorified, and that is the reason why the Spirit was not yet given. Now notice the words of Christ just before he dies in John chapter 17 and verse 5. Notice now what he asks for. In John chapter 17, verse 5, we're told, Christ says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Christ now is asking here for the glory. In other words, he is asking for his people, for the pouring out of his spirit. Now notice what the Desire of Ages, page 805, comments on this matter. Quote, the Holy Spirit was not yet fully manifested, for Christ had not yet been glorified. The more abundant impartation of the Spirit did not take place till after Christ's ascension. Now here it tells us nothing about another different individual. It actually tells us that the reason why the Holy Spirit was not poured out is because Christ was not yet glorified. And he had to ascend and be glorified before he could pour out his Spirit. In other words, he had to have the acceptance and the inauguration of his Father. He had to be accepted in the life that he lived. And when that happened, when he was glorified in heaven, that Spirit was poured out. That life that he lived on earth, that victorious life, like we were told earlier, the life of his life, the very soul of his life, that is the Holy Spirit. And that was poured out upon his people after he went to heaven and after it was accepted. Now it could be poured out upon his people. And Pentecost brought out this blessing. Now notice in John 17 verse 22 how Christ says it. That life, that glorified life is what he gives us. He says, and the glory... Which thou hast, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So when Christ gives us the Spirit, he gives us the glory that he received. Now let's continue and see exactly how this is described for us further in the spirit of prophecy. Desire of Ages, page 805, again, quote, the Holy Spirit is the breath of spiritual life in the soul. The impartation of the Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. It is that glorified life of Christ. Continuing, it imbues the receiver with the attributes of Christ. Only those who are thus taught of God, those who possess the inward working of the Spirit, and in whose life the Christ life is manifested, are to stand as representative men to minister in the behalf of the church. So the Holy Spirit is here called the life of Christ, the Christ life. It is the breath of spiritual life in the soul. That could not happen before Christ was glorified. That's why in his prayer, he asked that his father glorify him in order that he might give that glory to his disciples, to us. Okay, continuing. Here we have another objection from my entire church. 
the spirit or his spirit. Now this is regarding some wording and translation. So we'll deal with this very quickly because uh, I do not really believe that this is a valid objection whatsoever. But let's have a look. We're told here, most anti-Trinitarians teach that the spirit is just an attribute of God, not a separate entity. They use texts referring to his spirit and the spirit of God to prove this. Now, of course, this is a general this is a generalizing statement, but let's look at the comment that's made in it nonetheless. Regarding his spirit and the spirit of God, going on, we're told, tellingly, there is not one instance of the term his Holy Ghost in the whole Bible. Now, I'm not sure what this objection is meant to prove, even if it was correct, but we'll have a look at it. We're told here that Nowhere in the Bible is the term His Holy Ghost mentioned. Now that's true, of course, the words His Holy Ghost do not appear consecutively. But any Bible student who has done any Bible study with a concordance should be able to realize that there are certain terms in the Bible that are just synonymous, that are exactly the same in the original language, and only the translators differed in how they translated the same word. In other words, they translate the same word in a different way, in different places. And let's just look at a few examples. For example, the terms Spirit of God, the Spirit, and the, and the Holy Ghost are all synonymous. Let's read Matthew 3.16. We're told there, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And the word Spirit there is the Greek pneuma with the Strong's number 4151. And the word pneuma was translated there as spirit. Now in Mark 1.10, the same thing is applied, but it's also translated the spirit. So in Matthew, it's translated spirit of God. In Mark, it's translated the spirit. It's the same word in Greek. Now let's look at Luke 3.22. In Luke 3.22, the translators chose a different word for the same Greek word. It says in Luke 3.22, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And of course, the word ghost is the same Greek word pneuma with Strong's number 4151. Now, anybody with a concordance can check that at home. But I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. The word in Greek is the same in every case. It's pneuma. Sometimes it will be translated as spirit. Sometimes it will be translated as ghost. But they're both the same word. So the objection now is made. Tellingly, there is not one instance of the term his holy ghost in the whole Bible. And if we have found correctly that ghost and spirit are synonymous, so the objection then collapses because the objection says there is nowhere where we're told in the Bible, his holy ghost or his holy spirit. Now there are references in the Bible for this and we'll just quote them very quickly. Isaiah 63.10, we're told they vexed his holy spirit. Isaiah 63.11, the very next verse, at the last statement there, it says, where is he that put his holy spirit within him? Now, these are references, of course, from the Old Testament, but let's just check one in the New Testament where the word pneuma is used. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 8. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. That could have very well been translated his Holy Ghost. It's exactly the same thing. So there are instances in the Bible where the term his Holy Spirit which means his Holy Ghost are used. So that objection does not stand 
with anyone who has a Bible handy. Now let's ask ourselves this question for all those people who are trying to separate the Spirit of God from God. We're trying to separate, make create a distinction and a separation between God and His Spirit and drive a wedge between God and His Spirit and make the Spirit another God all on His own. Let's ask ourselves the question, is the Holy Spirit God Himself or is it someone else? And let's have an answer from inspiration. Spirit of Prophecy in the Faith I Live By, page 40, we are told, Well, God is a spirit, yet he is a personal being, for so he has revealed himself. So here we're told that God is a spirit, but while he is a spirit, yet he is still a personal being. Now let's come to education. Page 132, where we're told exactly the same thing. God is a spirit, yet he is a personal being, for man was made in his image. So here we have a deeper insight. Man was made in the image of God, who is spirit and a personal being. Continuing, let's read the next quote. It is Jesus that we need. His light, his life, his spirit must be ours continually. Now notice how beautiful this statement is, where we're told that the light, the life, and the Spirit of Christ, they're all used synonymously together. Now the reference there, ML, is my life today, for all those who are not aware of the abbreviation, my life today, page 15, that was a quote we just read. And we're told there that the light and the life and the Spirit of Christ must be ours continually. The light of Christ is not someone else, and the life of Christ is not someone else. Is the Spirit of Christ someone else? Reason would dictate that we are to be consistent in our interpretation of the words of the prophet. In Selected Messages, Book 1, page 249, we are told very plainly, quote, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John six fifty seven and 63. Christ is not here referring to his doctrine, but to his person, the divinity of his character. So when Christ spoke about the spirit quickening, he wasn't referring to his doctrine, and he wasn't referring to anyone else either. But we're told very plainly that he was referring to his person. He wasn't referring to another person, but to his own person. And she clarifies that further by saying the divinity of his character. So the spirit is not someone else different to God, but it is rather his person. It is the divinity of his character. So then the next natural question that we should ask ourselves in this so when God gives us his spirit, does he give us himself or does he give us someone else? When we receive God's spirit, who do we receive? Do we receive God himself or someone else? Now the Bible tells us the answer in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. And we should already know the answer. It says, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Lord is that spirit, not someone else. And here's a very plain statement from Testimonies, Volume 7, page 273. Quote, in giving us his spirit, God gives us himself, making himself a fountain of divine influences to give health and life to the world. How so very beautiful. When God gives us his spirit, he doesn't give us someone else. 
No, he gives us himself. Why? Because the spirit we found out is his very life. It is his very person. It is the divinity of his character. That is what God gives us, not someone else. Now we continue on to the next slide from Waitara Church. Here we have some objections from scripture regarding the personality of the spirit, stressing the fact that the spirit is more than a mere influence, but rather an individual God being in his own right, making a part of a three co-equal co-eternal Godhead of persons referred to as the Trinity. Is the spirit more than an influence? I'll tell you now just very plainly and quickly, certainly, if you have been listening at all throughout this presentation, you will have detected that the spirit is definitely more than just an influence. It is the very life. It is the very soul of our master. It is his very own personal presence. That's a very personal spirit, not an impersonal influence. So all these references that emphasize the fact that the spirit is more than a mere influence are all very plain and we agree to them. The first one that's used is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7, perhaps the pillar text for proving the Trinity doctrine. This is the number one pillar text that people use in defending the doctrine of the Trinity. And that text simply says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's interesting how much people will put into a text that stops short of saying any of the conclusions that are drawn by the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity, obviously, is not even in the text. The word three co-eternal beings is not in the text. All these conclusions that are drawn from this passage cannot be substantiated by this passage. All we can learn from this text is that there is a father, there is a son called the word, and there is a Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, and that these three are one. We're not told that these three are one God. You see, there is a full stop after the word one. There is no blank that says fill in the blanks because people interpret that to mean these three are one God. But the text does not say these three are one God. And if you read in the context of that text, you will notice that the one does not refer to the nature of the three, but it actually refers to their testimony. These three are one in testimony in that they bear the same record. They're not three, one God, as a lot of people believe. Now, that's just a comment very quickly. If you want a proper answer for 1 John 5, 7, all you have to do is turn to the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary and see what the Bible Commentary says about this text. That should answer that objection adequately and very well. Matthew twelve thirty one is the next text, speaking about blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. And the question is asked, can you blaspheme, can you blaspheme against someone who is not God? And the answer is certainly not. But... With a correct understanding of the Spirit, you will understand that when you blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, you're actually blaspheming God himself. You're not blaspheming, blaspheming someone else. Because we found very plainly that when God gives us his Spirit, he actually gives us himself. So if we blaspheme his Spirit or blaspheme against his Spirit, we're blaspheming against him, against him himself, not against someone else. But we'll have more on that point a little later. Acts 5.3 is one of the more popular objections and it says but peter said ananias why hath satan filled thine heart to lie to the holy ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land 
And the question is naturally asked, can you lie to an influence? And the answer is definitely no. You cannot lie to an influence. Now, any Bible-believing student, if he just reads these passages in context, will have no problem in understanding what the texts are saying. If you continue reading in Acts chapter 5 and go down to verse 9, you will see that they tried to lie to the Spirit of the Lord. They tried to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. And we found earlier that when Christ speaks of the Spirit, He's speaking of His own personal presence in the soul, His own divine person, the divinity of His character. So in lying to the Holy Ghost, they were tempting the Spirit of the Lord. They were lying to the Lord Himself. Now let's have a look at some of the objections. Most of the objections that are quoted regarding the personality of the Holy Spirit and using those texts to emphasize the fact that the Holy Spirit must be a separate and distinct individual person in his own right, different to Christ and the Father. Many of these texts are found in the book of Acts and the uh, instances where the Holy Spirit says things, the Holy Ghost does things, and the Holy Spirit uh, the Holy Ghost commands certain things in the book of Acts. Acts are references that are used very widely to promote the idea that the Spirit must be a different individual person in his own right. Now, it's very simple. Once you find the underlying principle in any objection, you will have no problem in understanding the objection. The question we ask ourselves is this. Throughout the book of Acts, who was working with the apostles? Now, the book of Acts can rightly be called the Acts of the Apostles, and more correctly can be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a major worker in the book of Acts. If anyone has read the book, will know that very quickly. Who was working all through the book of Acts? We're told very plainly that it's the Holy Spirit, because Christ told them at the beginning of that book that they should wait for the promise of the Spirit, and then they should go throughout throughout all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. Now, in Mark 16... Verses 19 and 20 is a text that gives us a piece of information that many people do not notice. And that text actually tells us who was working with the disciples in the book of Acts. Let's read it. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. How so very plain? When they went forth and preached everywhere, we're told here that it was the Lord who was working with them, confirming the word with signs following. So throughout all the book of Acts, according to Mark, it is the Lord who was working with them. And how was the Lord working with them? By His own Holy Spirit, which is His own personal presence. That's why 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us that the Lord is that Spirit. That is who the Lord is. He was working with them by His Spirit. He wasn't with them physically as He was on earth, but He was with them in spirit. And that is called in the Bible the Holy Spirit. That's His own life. Another very popular objection, perhaps one of the more popular ones, is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. And this is the verse talking about grieving the Holy Spirit. And it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And of course, the natural question is, can you grieve anyone who is not a person? 
And the conclusion is, if the spirit can be grieved, therefore it must be an individual, just as the father and the son are individuals. Now let's have a reasonable Bible verse upon verse and line upon line reasoning in order to understand this text. Who is really grieved when the spirit is grieved? Is it God himself who is grieved or is it someone else? Now we asked ourselves this question earlier and we found that the spirit of prophecy was very plain when we were told that when God gives us his spirit, he actually gives us himself, not someone else. So if we grieve God's spirit, who do we grieve? Do we grieve God or someone else? The consistent answer should be we're actually grieving God, not someone else. Now let's read about an example in the Bible where God was grieved by his spirit. And notice how it says it in Genesis chapter three, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 and 6, speaking about the antediluvian world. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now who is the Lord? The Lord, if you have a King James Bible, the capitalized Lord in the King James of course, is translated from the original Hebrew proper name of God, which is Yahweh. Now, we're told here that Yahweh said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And then he, God repented and says, It grieved the Lord in his heart. So the people were striving with his spirit, but who was grieved, the spirit or the Lord? No, the Lord, Yahweh himself, was grieved in his heart. So in grieving his spirit by striving with it, God himself was grieved, not someone else. Now, Paul in Ephesians says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. The same meaning should carry through. In grieving the Spirit of God, we actually grieve God himself in his heart, not someone else. Let's read. Spirit of Prophecy, Testimonies to Ministers, page 431. Quote, How can you, oh, how can you grieve your Redeemer? How can you dishonor Him before angels and before men? How can you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? How can you crucify the Lord of glory afresh and put Him to open shame? How so very plain. When we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, we crucify the Lord of glory afresh. We grieve our Redeemer, not someone else. That should be plain to anyone who can read the statement for themselves. Now, continuing on to the next section. The next section now from Waitara Church deals with the eternal existence and deity of Christ. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.